Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the love that you have shown us. And we rejoice in the way that you have reached into our hearts and shown us yourself. And we ask, Heavenly Father, as we seek to understand the importance and the significance of the relationship that you have with us, that we would understand that the most meaningful thing that we can do in our lives is to magnify your glory within the context of the cross. Be with us this morning. Keep us from error. Show us things from your word that conform us to the image of your son. For we pray in his name. Amen. So this morning is, uh, I believe it's the first lesson that we're going to be covering, uh, dealing with the Redeemer vision and our mission and the kind of the core principles that, uh, that we wish to sort of inculcate in, in the, the body at Redeemer here. Uh, if, if you've uh, visited our website or if you've been attentive during our congregational meetings when we've talked about our, our uh, vision, uh, the Redeemer vision is to magnify the glory of God in the cross of Christ. And uh, if you, again, if you've been to our website, you, uh, you know that the mission is that as the Lord enables, we worship in spirit and truth, grow in love and holiness, evangelize in word and deed, and make disciples. So these are the core ideas behind what we see as our identity as Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And, and all of this is done within the context of a community. We, we gather here each Sunday uh, to worship, to sing praise God's name, to hear his word proclaimed, to partake of the Lord's Supper. We also have activities like the one we have following today's service where we'll be sharing a meal together. And we also meet together during the week to build each other up, to reinforce each other's faith, uh, to, to strengthen the knowledge that we have of God so that we're better equipped to, uh, to follow through with those things that he calls us to do. Today we're going to be talking about growth in love and holiness. Um, and, you know, the, the, the question, why grow in love and holiness, is, would seem pretty obvious in the context of a Christian church because we know that God is love. We know he calls us to love one another. You know that his word is, is summarized in loving him first and then loving our neighbor as ourself. But there's a, a foundational element to, to this love, and there's a linkage between that love and holiness that we're going to try to unpack this morning to get a greater understanding of who God is and just how glorious the cross is in restoring us to relationship with him so that we can fellowship with him. Now, if, if you're a, a, a theology nerd, then you probably know that we have a Westminster Shorter Catechism question that says, uh, what is the sum of the Ten Commandments? And that the answer to that question is, the sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. And anyone who's 
been in Christian circles for very long and has heard the gospel narratives, read through the gospels, know, knows that this is an answer that Christ gave. And so uh, it, in Matthew 27, if we were to turn to that, you don't have to, I'm going to read it now. Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. Uh, when the Pharisees were trying to, to trap Jesus, a after they'd realized that uh, the Sadducees, who were the theology nerds of their day, they, they failed to trap him, uh, they tried to ask him, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And there was, there was some, a lot of theological nuance that actually went into this, because there were a lot of laws and there was a lot of debate that would go on in the, in the theological community as to which law was the greatest. But Jesus had this way, because he spoke with authority, of going right to the heart of the matter. And the way that he answers this is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now when Jesus quotes this, does anybody know the passages in scripture that Jesus is pointing back to when he's quoting this particular, uh, this particular set of two commandments to the Pharisees? Yep, that's getting close. <laughs> Deuteronomy 6 and, Le and Leviticus 19. Those are the two passages. The Deuteronomy 6 is referred to as the Shema. Does anybody know what Shema means? Here. Means here. And that's because the, the way that the passage starts out in Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4, is, Hear, O Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. So it, this passage, this little itty-bitty passage here, starts off first with the words here, which is meant to get people's attention. But then God directs Moses to use this phrase, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So in, in light of the context that the Shema is presented, what is the significance of that phrase? The Lord is God, the Lord is one. Ronnie? There, there, are, there are some uh, theologians who believe that. There, there's an, another interpretation that comes from the context that's a little bit stronger. If you take a look back at Deuteronomy chapter 4 and then Deuteronomy chapter 5, the, if, if you look at chapter 5 and you're familiar with it, you know that that contains the second statement of the law. That's where the, the book gets its name. So the, the Ten Commandments are laid out in 
in Deuteronomy chapter 5, but there's a passage that, that precedes Deuteronomy chapter 5 in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And uh, would, would someone like to find Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 through 40? Does someone have that? Landon? Yes, Deuteronomy chapter 4, 32 through 40. And you can feel free to read the heading as well. The Lord alone is God. <laughs> the Lord alone is God. So this particular verse has a tie back to the, the love that God showed way back in his relationship with Abraham. He talks about how God starts by leading the patriarchs, the fathers, into the land, then into Egypt, then delivers them from Egypt. And in doing this, he reveals himself as the great deliverer. The, the one who shows love to those whom he has chosen in a steadfast way. And we know by the time we've gotten to Deuteronomy that all of the incidents that occurred in Exodus where there, was the, there were the great rebellions, where Israel showed a, a lack of faithfulness to God, that God remains faithful, and they're on the cusp now of entering the promised land. So here we are, we're, we're, at, a, we're at a phase right now where God is reiterating who he is. He's reiterating his faithfulness. And he's reminding Israel that it's his steadfast love, the love that goes all the way back to Abraham when, when, he, when God was the one who walked the trail of blood, making the commitment to his people, saying, this covenant will be kept, and I'm going to be the one who keeps it. He shows a steadfast love. 
And so this is the kind of love that we're trying to understand here as, as a church, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, because we're called to reflect God. We're called to reflect him through holiness to a world that, as, as we look out on it now, for those of us who've been a, around this world for you know, 50, 60 or more years, as we look back on it, we can see that the contrast between Christians and non-Christians in this country has never been greater. And we have a, a wonderful opportunity that's before us now to be light, to be the light that God calls us to be, and to show the kind of steadfast love that God is articulating here in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, and to give expression to that. So, so the Shema comes within a context of God calling his people to the kind of faithful, steadfast love that he has to demonstrate that, to demonstrate that love first toward him because he's infinitely worthy of love, but then to express it to one another. So when you, when you look at the end of that passage, could, uh, Landon, could you read the last couple of verses of it again, please? Now, now, there's a part of us that, you know, having sat through Stephen Berry's Sunday school class and, and how it talks about how the, the law can provoke sin, there, we, can, we can get a wrong idea about what God is saying here when he talks about it going well with you and dwelling in the land. We can look at it as being this, this conditional promise where if you're good, God is going to bless you with stuff with almost having, almost having a sense that we earn it. If we're good enough, God blesses us. But that's not what he's saying here. He points back to his steadfast faithfulness and says, I am faithful. I am worthy of your love. And there's a big difference there because what he's trying to do is he's trying to get his people to see him for who he is. As Jonathan Edwards puts it, that... Uh, a, a, uh, an entity is worthy of love based on the loveliness that that entity has. And God, with his infinite attributes of being um, eternal and unchangeable in, in his being, in his wisdom, power, his holiness, uh, his justice that's, that's unimpeachable, his goodness in that he, the rain falls on those who sin miserably and those who follow him and his commitment to truth. He's worthy of love. He's worthy of our adoration. And so that's what God is trying to express here in a way that we can understand. He's expressing the infinite worth of fellowship with him. And this is the antidote to the distractions that our idol factory hearts seem to cling to as we look to things in the world that are something less than fellowship with him. So when Christ answered the question, he first started out with the Shema. And Leviticus chapter 19 
has the passage about loving your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to go ahead and, and, and read that for the sake of time. Um, it's Leviticus chapter 19. We're going to re read beginning in verse, uh, verse 9 and reading through verse 18. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear the Lord. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in courts. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. There's a, a certain recurring phrase that has come up in this passage several times, and, and what is that phrase? I am the Lord. It's, it's interesting how God when he wants to make a point about the importance of what he, of what he has to say or, or who he is, this phrase, I am the Lord. Why, why does God, why do you think God keeps saying that? Just to give a little bit of context, uh, that phrase, I am the Lord, or phrases similar to it, is found about 184 times in the Old Testament. And of those, the, 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 it, it occurs the most in Ezekiel. It occurs, uh, I think it's 84 times uh, in 82 verses. Leviticus, it occurs 49 times in 49 verses. That particular phrase comes up 15 times in this chapter. We didn't read the entire chapter, but roughly a third of, of all the times that it's said in this book, it's said in this particular chapter here. Now, why do you think God keeps reiterating, I am the Lord, as he's laying out the moral, moral imperatives? Yes? That's, that's uh, 
Very, very good. Ronnie, you were going to say something? So, Yeah, yeah, he's, he, he is the ultimate standard for righteousness. He's the ultimate standard for love. And as, as he's commanding love, he's also reminding the people of who he is. And there's, there, here's, here's the solid linkage that we have between love and holiness. We have a holy God who loves us, and his commandments are for us, to behave in a manner that's consistent with his character. So these are, these are commands that if you take a step back and you just assess them in terms of what God is communicating through them, what he's communicating is that I'm, I'm the God of the universe. I have the authority to tell you what to do, but as as was, will be stated in Deuteronomy, I have this love that goes back to the promises that I made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I'm steadfast, and if you do these things, this is what will give you the kind of fellowship with me that will remove the distractions from life in a way where you will be men and women after God's own heart. So the, there's a, an inextricable link between love and holiness. They're not, when we look at them conceptually, we see them as different elements, but love and holiness work together. And we see it here in this, in this particular passage where God says, I have the authority to tell you to do this, but this is who I am. Be like me. And then we can commune together. So the, the call here in this particular passage gives us the link that we need to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, when we, when we think of love, what do we think of as sort of the gold standard of love, if you were to pick a passage? John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yep. And 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 fleshes that out, right? It's probably worth turning over there. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And this is so convicting. Anyone who reads it uh, has to be at least a little bit convicted by it. First uh, Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, 
but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And skipping to verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So when you take a look at, at this verse, and now we look at it within the context of growing in love and holiness, what are some of the attributes of love that the Apostle Paul is, is so poetically laying out here? Forbearance. Forbearance. Do you want to flesh that out a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. We're not easily irritated. Uh, that's what we love about love. We, we yeah. put up. Um, we're, we're willing to put up with more than our fair share of being wrong. Yeah. And then we're willing to look at that in order to love that person, that object. Yeah. And, 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 and how does this tie back to what we just talked about in, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament, where we looked at God expressing to Israel what loving their neighbor looks like in, a, in a several paragraphs before he gives the actual command, love your, love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe that question was badly directed. Um, if, if you take a look at what Matthew just said about forbearance, and, and the command to, to bear with one another. And as we look back at, at the, the passage in Leviticus 19, uh, and the things that we considered before that with the Deuteronomy passage, where uh, that Landon read that expressed God's love towards Israel, what, in essence, is the Apostle Paul saying here when he says, you need to have forbearance in your love? Landon? That's, that's what God has done. That's what God has done to, with Israel. That's what God has done uh, through Christ, as, as the Apostle Paul is writing this. This is the love that God has shown us. This is the love that we're called now to, to give expression to in the world. So, it, so we talked about how it bears all things. What about believes all things? What is that, what is the significance of believing all things in, in um, 1 Corinthians 13? Maybe I'll, I'll give an example of what it's not. We were, we were at a, a softball game one time, and uh, there were some high school students there who obviously had gone through some of the uh, affirmation kind of stuff that they were talking about in, in, uh, in the high school context where uh, there was a, it was a men's league, and it was, it was kind of comical, me and my 
my children kind of chuckled about it afterwards, but there's this grown man at the plate and there were these high school kids who were cheering him on and they were saying, we believe in you. And it, it, sounded, it, it sounded so funny because he, he wasn't a very good hitter and he, he actually ended up kind of, he didn't, he didn't discharge himself well at the plate, let's put it that way. But that's, that's not the kind of belief that we're talking about here, right? So what kind of belief is it if we're believing all things? Ronnie? Okay. Yes. Yeah, there's this essence uh, of belief that is, that is tied to what God says, and it's tied to the growth of his church, and it's recognizing that the God who has begun a good work in your brothers and sisters will complete it. And that's what we look forward to when we believe. We don't believe in the person themselves. We believe in the God who is working uh, in people to will and to do according to his purposes as they work out their salvation. And so similarly, how does love hope all things? We put our hope in God. Anything else? Yeah. It, it, yep. Yeah, the, the hope is, again, tied to the promises of God. It's it, it's, a, it's a hope that looks more like faith than hoping for the best. It's not that you hope thing, good things will happen. It's you hope in the promises of God. You, your hope is in him fulfilling his word. And in fulfilling his word, th then you see the realization of those things hoped for. Yeah, exactly, that, that God calls us all to the fruit of the Spirit, right? And the fruit of the Spirit are, are different than the gifts, like the gifts that were, were spoken of in Corinthians, but everybody's actually expected to bear the fruit of the Spirit. And 
to be hoping, to be looking forward to that fruit of the Spirit growing in those who are God's children. So, so we're looking for that. We're expecting it. We're hoping it. Now, if, if we want to take a look at, um, at holiness, um, I think it was Andrew who, was, uh, who may have been covering holiness in a class. I can't remember exactly who it was, but it was a discussion of if you were to describe uh, holiness, what, what concept or what uh, work of God in the, in the lives of his people is tied to holiness? Sanctification. So if you're looking, yeah, I'm afraid that I'm asking questions that only my family can understand here. I'm sorry about that, making it a little bit difficult for you. Um, sanctification. It's, uh, and if, if we take a look at sanctification, there's sort of the, uh, the somewhat sterile definition that we find in the Westminster Standards. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And there are several scripture proofs for that. And I think that, you know, we've, we've discussed that concept uh, several times in other Sunday school classes as well, so I don't, I don't think that we really need to dwell too much on it. Yes, Charlie? Yeah, there, there, there are two aspects to our sanctification. Um, and there's, there's a little bit of theological hair splitting that goes on here. Uh, it's a lot of times what will happen when, uh, when candidates are examined for the ministry, they'll ask like back-to-back -back questions of what is justification, what is adoption, what is sanctification. And, and with justification and, um, and with adoption, they're both called an act of God's free grace. But sanctification is the work of God's free grace. So there's the, there's the work that God does in us. There's the act that he does of declaring us righteous. There's the work that he does in us through the power of his Holy Spirit to equip us to follow him and to do his will. And as, as you, we take a look at sanctification and the, the role that it plays in the life of the believer, we really do have to take a step back as we look at this notion of holiness to understand the foundation, the foundations of grace that God provides that then equip us by the power of God's Holy Spirit to uh, be renewed in the whole man in the image of God. So with justification, justification is, is an, an act of God's free will where, where he declares us righteous through Christ's shed blood. 
and, and there's, the, uh, there's the dual exchange. Our sinfulness was laid on him. His righteousness is conferred to us, that God, God declares us righteous. He credits Christ's righteousness to us. And how does that provide the wherewithal to understand, both understand what sanctification is, but also to actively engage in it. So what is it about the, the work of the cross that, that God does in declaring us righteous? How does that equip us to do his will? Gives us humility. Yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. That it's there, right? John? Yeah, so now that, now that we're positionally righteous, we don't have to worry about that sin that we committed 20 years ago. You don't have to sit there and obsess about it. And as a, as a matter of fact, God doesn't want us to. He wants us to repent of our sins. He wants us to come, come to him for for uh, forgiveness for sins. But once we're forgiven, we're forgiven. And that's part of the act of faith, right? The, the act of faith is that when God forgives us, we don't have to keep coming back and revisiting those sins over and over again. It doesn't mean that we won't. There's, there's also part of, of our sinfulness, right, that causes the problem that makes it hard for us to have a relationship with God, and that is that a lot of these acts, they come, they come to mind again. It's the natural consequence of sin to remember how heinous it is. But when the accuser comes, when Satan comes seeking to accuse us, and we re recall all of those horrible sins that we've committed, we can face him now and we can say, you're right. Not only are you right, 
but there's a lot more that's a lot worse about me. But all of that is forgiven through Christ. And with that behind us, we, we can lead the life that, uh, that the writer of Hebrews calls us to in Hebrews chapter 12, where we can cast aside everything that hinders, including an unnecessary obsession with those things that we've done in the past. We can cast that all aside, and we can run the race, we can run it hard, and we can run it with endurance, because we know that we're forgiven. And that, kind of, that forms the, the, the foundation for our, uh, for our sanctification. That's why sanctification and justification, they always go together. You, you, you don't see one apart from the other. There, there's one other uh, item that uh, I think we have enough time to cover here, and that is we'd like to take a look at, at, uh, at love and holiness in action. And we're going to turn to a passage that uh, we don't often consider in this light, but we'll take a look here at uh, Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 15. And this is, this is the passage where Joseph, Joseph's brothers are uh, coming to him after his father died. So Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21, and I'll go ahead and read this for the sake of time. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, we're all pretty familiar with, with the story of Joseph and his brothers, how they sold him into slavery. Uh, and the only reason why they sold him into slavery and didn't kill him was because uh, one of their, one of the, the oldest, Reuben, intervened, and they decided that instead of just wasting the opportunity by killing him, they might as well profit from it. And, and he suffered a lot of difficulty and injustice in his life. Yet, when, when faced with his brothers and faced with the opportunity for, for retribution, how does he react? He shows love and kindness. So how does this show, how, how is Joseph here demonstrating the love and the holiness of God? Forgiveness. Good. Yep. 
Yeah. He's, he has the God's eye view of the situation. And not just in a theoretical sense. He sees, he sees God. He sees God's glory. And he sees how all of the things have worked together for the good of Joseph, who loves God. He, he has that uh, Romans 8 view of God's universe, that God is taking all of, has taken all of these horrible things to reveal himself and his goodness and his love. And Joseph responds the same way. He responds the same way as God himself. So when it comes to living life, as, as uh, Matthew said earlier, there's, a, there's an aspect of forbearance, right? He's, he's forbearing with his brothers. Not only does he forbear with all the horrible things that they did, but he forbears with this, this pitiful attempt to lie to him, to get him to do something that's in their interest. I mean, he, he doesn't look at it and say, ah, there they are again. Not only did they mistreat me, but now they're lying to me. Do they think I'm stupid? That, that, you know, that, that's probably the way some of us would act. I, I'll have to number myself in that camp, okay, where I'd be insulted that, he, that someone tried such a ruse with me. But he forbears. He loves. He looks at what's transpired, he looks at what God has done in his life, and he considers from the God's eye view what are, the, what are the, the big important things, and he leads a life that's, that's in accordance with God's principles. Any other thoughts on this passage before we move on? Not the verb, not the uh, conjugation of the verb to be, but I am the name, and he equates it with Lord when Moses says, well, who do I say is sending me? 
and he explains to Moses, uh, you know, I was known by one name, and I, but I am all the same thing. And holiness and love is a great summary of all of those things that are, you know, God is. And we can be on, on his behalf. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's important that as, as we take a look at that, that element of love that believes all things and that hopes all things and that endures all things, that, that, that forms a, a strong foundation in us as we interact with one another, believing, hoping, and enduring. We, not only do we, do we encourage that person by demonstrating those qualities ourselves, but we, we also are making an implicit statement about how trustworthy God is. Because we're, we're not trusting that that person is good now in spite of something that they've done that's not good. But we're trusting that the God who has begun the work in them will complete it. And as, as we look to what, what God promises to do in our lives, that he, he promises to, to never leave us or forsake us, that he encourages us never to worry. He's there as the power that's made perfect in our weakness when, when we struggle with the Lord in the flesh. All of these encouragements drive us to, to recognizing that it's not us who's going to do it. Because when we look at these things, we, you know, we still struggle, even though we know that we're forgiven, that, that one sin that had that horrible consequence, it's like, it's, it's, for, it's on my mind. But one of the things, uh, I, I wish I had the quote here, I wish I kept the quote, but one, one of the, the things that's going on within us is it's both an element of pride and a lack of faith when we, when we refuse to let those things go. Because it's, it's pride in saying that, no, I, I realize that in the final analysis, God may say this, but I gotta think about it. And God is the one who says, no, as far as east is from the west. Are your sins. I'll remember your sins no more. And that's the experience that David had. And well, we're running out of time here. There's, a, th there's one last phrase in here that I think uh, helps us as, as we consider what it means to both express love and holiness. Let me get it here really quick so that I don't lose it. It says, the way that, in, in going back to um, Leviticus chapter 19, starting in verse 17, he says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. This kind of has a, the same ring as, uh, as Galatians 6.1, where, where the, the stronger brother is encouraged to uh, restore the weaker brother, but not to fall into sin themselves. This is, this, is kind of, this is a foundational passage that kind of gives an undergirding to that. But when we take a look at God, how does God 
when he interacts with his people and when he interacts with us, you know, how does he do things? He reasons with us. He reasons with us frankly. The, the first major sin that God confronts is Cain with his heart that's downcast. What does he say to him? I know it's in your heart. You're going to kill your brother. You're evil. Get away from my sight. No, that's not what he says. He says, sin is crouching like a lion, ready to attack you. It wants to master you, but you need to master it. He reasons with him. He explains what's at stake. And even after Cain commits that heinous act, what does he do? He puts a mark on Cain. So Cain doesn't get wiped out. Cain isn't cut off. Cain is given the opportunity to repent because he has a mark on him where he's going to lead the kind of life that he's going to lead. And he's not going to be cut off by men because God has marked him as a sign of his love, a sign of his forbearance. All the things that we read about in, in Corinthians 13, we see God showing those very qualities when he interacts with Cain, when he interacts with Jonah. He sends Jonah out. What does Jonah do? He goes the opposite direction. Then when, he for, when, when God forgives Nineveh when they repent, he says, I knew you'd do this. Hard, hard. How does, how does God deal with them? He gives them the object lesson with the vine that grows up. And then he, then he explains to them, there are, there are tens of thousands of souls at stake here. They don't know their left hand from their right. How does, how does he deal with uh, Elijah? Elijah runs. He, he runs from, from Ahab and Jezebel right after God demonstrated that he was with him, that he wouldn't forsake him, that, that God's power would be with him. What does he do? Does he say, what did I just show you? No. Elijah, what are you doing? He reasons with us. That's the, that's the way that God works with us. And that's the quality that he wants us to have with one another. We want to have the kind of love that reasons with one another, that looks to God and his Holy Spirit when we realize that we're struggling, and that that, that in turn will be the, the catalyst for holiness in our lives. Any other questions or comments before we close here in prayer? Okay. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for how you are so clearly portrayed as having all of those attributes that you command in your people. And we thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son to die on our behalf, to bear the penalty for our sins, that we might have his righteousness and stand boldly in your presence. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would work in us, that you would fill us with the love that you have for us, and that we would demonstrate that love to a world that needs to see it. And we ask also, Heavenly Father, that our lives would exemplify the holiness of the one that we serve, we thank you again for your word. We thank you again for the way that you make it clear and accessible for us to understand. 
We thank you for your son. We lift up these prayers now to you in his name and for his sake. Amen.